This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. Well, it was more than 50 years ago when William Shatner on Star Trek in his opening narration referred to space as the final frontier. Now, we spend a lot of time on this program talking about space, but I'm betting as much time as we spend talking about space, we don't spend nearly as much time as you might spend wondering about space, looking up and wondering What's out there? What must it be like to visit? What must it be like to see the earth from there? Well, uh, joined right now by a man who doesn't have to imagine. He may do a fair amount of looking and wondering, but he's been in the rare position to actually look at earth from space. Uh, very pleased to be joined by Victor Glover, a NASA astronaut and pilot on the first operational flight of the SpaceX Crew Dragon to the International Space Station. He is a commander in the U.S. Navy, a graduate, a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Test Pilot School, and he was a crew member of Expedition 64 and served as a station systems flight engineer. So if there's a guy that knows his way around space, it's Victor Glover. Victor, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Uh, it's great to be here, Frank. Thank you for having me. You know, even with the prevalence of uh, private space travel and people being able to go to space a little bit more easily than they did 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, it's still a pretty rare thing uh, to be able to go to space and call yourself an astronaut. When did you know that you wanted to be an astronaut? Was this something that you uh, always harbored ambitions of, uh, of doing, or was this something that you just sort of fell into given your pilot training and your experience? in the military? Well, a little bit of both. You know, as a kid, I was very interested in the, uh, the, the high adrenaline uh, career fields. I wanted to be a stuntman, a race car driver, a fireman, and a policeman like my father. And, and I saw a shuttle launch on TV, and, and I thought, I want to I drive that thing. And I didn't know any pilots or astronauts, you know, so I didn't know you had to fly it. But I wanted to drive the space shuttle. And uh, I would say that's when the seed was planted and then going off and, and studying engineering in college, but also wrestling in college and, and, and sports, again, continuing to you know, feed that like high performing, high op tempo, uh, challenging uh, environment, but with small teams. Uh, and then I would actually wind up going into the Navy out of college and, and going into aviation. And I was in test pilot school when I heard Pam Melroy give a talk about her mission, one of the few female shuttle commanders we've had, and listening to her talk about the people she worked with, not just the technical things that they accomplished, but the people that they were and how much respect she had for them as their commander. Really, that's when I decided, okay, yeah, that plant is, is full grown. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply and, and see what NASA has to say. Tell me about the moment when you get the call or I don't know if it's a call or an email or a text message let, or maybe it's an in-person interaction where you learn that you're going to space. What was that circumstance? When was it? Who told you that you were going to space and what was your reaction like? Well, so I think uh, there, there are two calls that I think are significant. Uh, the first one is the call to become an astronaut candidate. Uh, I was working on Capitol Hill 
uh, in in an office in the Senate, and I actually missed a call from Houston, <laughs> and I got a, oh boy. a message. I ran out in the hallway and called back, and I was on hold what seemed like forever, and then uh, they put me through to Janet Cavandi, who was the chair of our astronaut candidate selection board, and she said, how would you like to come to Houston and start astronaut candidate training? I said, yes, of course. And I hung up the phone, and I'm looking around, this military officer, you know, and I've got this suit on, and I'm standing by all these marble statues with all this brass. And I'm looking, and I'm just going, man, this is totally a dream. And I actually pinched myself. I physically pinched myself. Uh, and then it was interesting because the next day, I, I, called, I called my wife and my dad and my mom and told them the news. But the next day, we all had emails, the eight of us who were selected in 2013. We all had emails from Janet Cavani that said it was not a dream. So that was actually, that was actually, <laughs> that was a great day, a uh, few days. And then the next call is when I got assigned to the, uh, to the Crew One mission. And so I had been working with what we call the commercial crew program, the program that helped to get the, uh, the, the, these new American spacecraft flying. And so I was assigned to a SpaceX mission with Mike Hopkins at the time. It was just the two of us. And we were later joined by Shannon Walker and Soichi Noguchi. And that call actually was on vacation. Uh, my wife and I were on a cruise, uh, on a cruise ship, and, and I got an email. And so I wrote my boss back and said, I can, I'm actually in cell phone range. I could call you. And so we talked on the phone and he had told me the, his plan and who I would fly with that I would be with. Uh, I'd be the pilot with uh, Mike Hopkins as the commander. And he wanted to know how I felt about that. And I told him I was really excited, looking forward to it, make, doing my best and making him proud. And so that was a, that was also a really good day, especially because I was on vacation with my wife and it was just the two of us and we had time to, to really talk about what that meant for our family. When, when the space program first started in this country, the government sort of had and world governments sort of had a monopoly on going to space. Even when you first became an astronaut almost 10 years ago, it was generally thought that, uh, you know, if you want to go to space, it's the government that is the mechanism for being able to do that uh, through NASA and other similar entities in other countries these days. We're seeing tremendous private sector investment into space exploration led by people like Elon Musk and Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos. In your view, is that transition from public sector to private sector for space exploration, is that a, is that a positive, a negative, or uh, are, is the jury still out on uh, how that transition is working out? Uh, I mean, I would say it's absolutely positive. Uh, we have to continue to make sure that we're vigilant and that we do it safely and, and to the best of our ability to make sure that we send people up and, more important, bring them home safe. Uh, and as long as we are vigilant, I think it, it will always be a positive because that's a part of what we are here to do. Uh, you know, you look at the work that, that SpaceX has done, and a lot of it was in partnership with NASA. And a lot of what we mm-hmm. accomplish in our crew program is, start, is supported, uh, actually, the cargo vehicle. Uh, a lot of what we accomplished with our cargo vehicle with SpaceX enabled them to develop a crew vehicle and developing a crew vehicle for NASA has enabled them to fly private missions where there's no government backing, uh, like you mentioned earlier. So I, I think they work together and, and it's, it's, a, it's really indicative of, of the really amazing innovation uh, and development that, that uh, is going on right now. But I think it is unquestionably positive and we just have to remain vigilant. 
If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Victor Jerome Glover, uh, an honest-to-God astronaut who was on the first operational flight of the SpaceX Crew Dragon to the International Space Station. He ha- it was also a crew member of Expedition 64. We, You're an honest-to-God astronaut, Victor, and uh, we've seen people like you, John Glenn, Neil Armstrong, uh, celebrated and uh, feted over the years by uh, the public, by scientists, by uh, the military, academics alike. Then we've seen people who uh, are able to spend a lot of money uh, to buy a ticket to go to space at least early on, they were called astronauts as well, even though they weren't piloting a space uh, shuttle, they weren't doing any experiments out in space. In your opinion, should the people who go on a private space flight uh, just through buying a ticket, should those folks be able to call themselves astronauts the same way that you're called an astronaut? Yeah, you know, Frank, that's a great question. And I think it's, it's an issue if we make it an issue, right? It's like a first world problem if there is one. What do we call sure, you? Sure. Uh, I, I think it's the, the distinctions between what I do for a living, right? I was an astronaut by job title before I flew in space, whereas most of these missions, these private missions, they accomplish an activity that, that they use now that they were an astronaut to, because they flew in space. And that, that may seem subtle, uh, but, but that nuance I think is important. This is what I do for a living. And so, you know, someone may want to use the distinction like professional astronaut or, I mean, I am what I am. I am a NASA astronaut and that is different. And so it's one thing to go and do an activity as an astronaut you know, uh, and another thing to be in this profession. And here's the other thing, though. Even though I've been here going on a decade, one day I won't do this. And when I leave this, I will be a former NASA astronaut. And mm. so we uh, very much are concerned about being engaged in this activity. But but again, I think this is a great problem to have. You know, uh, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, Elon Musk. The most important thing when I think about those folks, two of those having gone to space, is that they have for decades created lots of great quality science and technology jobs. And they have really grown this industry and changed the game, literally. They've changed the planet with their efforts. Uh, and so I think that that's really important. You know, what they call themselves, if it was a part of their personal dream to go to space and being an astronaut helped them to do that and to, to change this industry, then, then I think that's a positive. It's a positive. And our partnerships with those that we have are, are, are great and still producing new capabilities. Uh, I'm working with SpaceX right now for the system that's going to land the next human beings on the moon. And that's pretty wow. significant, not super significant. And so I think that relationship is important, more important than what we call, you know, one another, whoever goes above 50 or 62 miles above the surface of the earth, because at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's important that we get as many people into space as we can, but we may never be able to get them all. Uh, and those of us that go, I think, have a responsibility to share share that experience with other people. And so I don't have any problem calling those folks astronauts. I think what they've done takes courage and, and, and vigilance from all of us. 
Well, I don't get to see a lot of films these days as the father of a uh, of a three-month-old. I do consider myself something of a, a film buff. And whenever I interview gangsters, politicians, law enforcement officials, FBI agents, anybody that's been part of a world that I'm unfamiliar with and I think a lot of our listeners might be unfamiliar with, I always ask them the same question. I ask them, of all the films that we might have seen in that given genre, depicting any of the things that I just mentioned, what's the most realistic? As far as you're concerned, as a genuine, honest-to-God astronaut, someone that's been to space, someone that's been on the International Space Station, of all of the the films depicting space travel that you've seen, What's the most realistic? Oh, wow. That is a great question. And I I think I'm going to have to talk about two. I think I have to give you two. Uh, Two jump out at me right away. And one is The Martian. And I think that's because it's contemporary. It was recent. Mm. uh, and, and, And it really shows the science and technical parts of it. Even though we haven't sent humans to Mars, there weren't many things in that movie that were not accurate. I mean, the, the, the density of the air on Mars was a, a little bit uh, unreal, the storm that was there. But other than that, the, the, the way the Martian was presented is very much how NASA could go about accomplishing a, a human mission to Mars. So that was great. But something else that jumps out at me after my time in space is how important it, the, the family piece and the social-emotional connection and emotional regulation. And, and so the uh, first man, first man also jumps out at me to, as, as a, a part, that part, a part of the psychological and emotional at impact of, of leaving the planet for a, a, a period of time. First man and the Martian. Well, uh, those are both great films, and uh, I'm not surprised that uh, those are among the first that people mentioned. You get the sense that there's elements of reality in both. Now, when those of us that never have been to space go, there are certain things that we uh, picture that we think about the idea of weightlessness and zero gravity, the idea of maybe being in a sort of a confined space, uh, the idea of missing our family, our friends, our loved ones on Earth. But whenever you do something that's new, I'm sure there's all sorts of surprising things that never occur to somebody. In your opinion, if you had to pick uh, the most surprising thing to you about going to space, what was it? Oh, gosh. The most surprising thing. Oh, you know, I think weightlessness, it, it has this ability to make hard things easy and easy things hard. And so, and that's the case the whole time, right? You, you can't simply open uh, a bag of potato chips in space. They will fly all over the place, right? And so, but your, your life experience up to that point is you open a bag of things and they stay in the bag, but that doesn't happen in weightlessness. And so I would say the, the most surprising thing in general was just how everyday normal things that we take for granted were some of the more difficult, challenging things to do in space. For example, just moving around. We get it very quickly. Your brain and body adapt to weightlessness or coming back to Earth very quickly. But the first couple of days in space, I am surprised at how clumsy I was. I kept smacking Hmm. into corners and bumping into things. And it's like, man, I've seen people fly in the movies, and it's easier than this. They look much more 
suave and debonair and, and then trying to, to really get good at it. And, and then over time, you become very efficient. Uh, but, yes, I was surprised at how basic things, eating, drinking water, uh, and, and things like that. Early on, I was drinking water and trying to talk to one of my crewmates, and I realized I should not try to drink and talk at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Victor Glover, an honest-to-God astronaut, uh, part of the uh, the uh, Expedition 64 project, somebody that was part of the SpaceX uh, crew to the International Space uh, Station. Victor, I realize this is going to sound like a, an odd question, but, uh, but bear with me because this is overnight radio and uh, I take a lot of fact, a lot of pride in the fact that we take calls from all walks of life. And uh, last week, I had a detailed call uh, from someone that had a whole lot of um, explanation, a whole lot of anecdotal evidence as to why he believed that the earth was not the uh, sphere that so many of us grew up that it was, that it was actually uh, some version of being flat. As somebody that has the unique distinction of having been to space and has looked down upon the Earth, can you state unequivocally that the Earth is round and a sphere and not actually flat? Uh, unequivocally, it is. It is It is what we were taught. It's not a perfect globe. We call it an ellipsoid, uh, and even that is too perfect of a shape. It's kind of like a tomato, if you will, a little bit flattened on, on edges, top and bottom. But it is definitely uh, a spheroid. You know, it's it's spherical. And 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 to if you understand what orbit is, we orbit around the Earth. Would it be possible if if the Earth was not round uh, in three dimensions, uh, which is what a sphere is? And so uh, we we circle the globe, and we're going so fast that as we fall, we actually fall. Uh, we're falling at the same speed we are, uh, the ground is moving away from us. And so we're moving across the ground and falling. And that's why everything floats. Weightlessness is actually perpetual free fall. And that's uh, uh, only possible if you're moving around a, a spherical object. And uh, why do you think a theory like that, the flat earth theory, seems to have gotten new legs uh, in recent years? I mean, you thought maybe we put that to bed in the 14th or 15th century at the latest, but there's this growing chorus of folks on the Internet. I'm deluged with uh, correspondence from them on Twitter that embraces this idea of a flat earth. What's that about? Yeah, Frank, I'm glad you brought this up, actually. And you apologized at first, but I'm glad you brought this up because it is a pretty wide-held view. I'm surprised at how widespread, but it's important. And it's important that we don't discount that either because so many people uh, do have questions. And I think it's important for us to talk about the questions. I don't know if it's really resurged. I think it's maybe just been there. And social media and and the connectivity, the, the, Mm. the megaphone, that the internet gives to people has made it seem more prevalent. Uh, but I think it's, it's because of something that's just human nature. We believe what we can see and touch uh, easier than the things that we can't see and can't touch. And so people that haven't been to space, haven't seen Earth uh, from orbit uh, for themselves, it's, it's really challenging for them to accept it if they have indications uh, uh, otherwise. And when you walk around on this 
big spheroid on your own, it looks flat to you, even though if you go out on a cruise ship and sail towards Hawaii, Hawaii appears to grow out of the ocean slowly as you get closer. That's an aspect of it being round. It's just really big and round. But but I think it's because of human nature. We value our primary experience uh, over other things. And so that's human nature. But it, but there's also something else socially going on that we have to talk about, which is why I'm glad you brought this up. It's trust. It's trusting in each other. And so for someone to, to hear me talk about my experience and, and that to matter to them, they have to trust me. And and I don't I don't walk into things assuming people are going to just trust me. Yeah, because I wear this blue flight suit and it says astronaut on it that uh, they're going to just take my word for, you know, as, as the truth. And so um, there are lots of ways to, to go out and find your own primary evidence without having to go to space. There are things we can do. And so if someone's really, truly interested in understanding, we have ways to get there. Uh, but I think it's just a part of human nature to believe in what you can see and experience yourself. You have the call sign Ike, just like President Eisenhower. How did you get the nickname Ike? <laughs> Okay, Ike. Here's the short story. I say it's Ike. It stands for I know everything. It's short. I for... know everything. <laughs> yes. I wish it was like uh, General President Eisenhower, but it's really an acronym. I know everything, and it's a short for I think I know everything. And so my call sign is a reminder to never pass up an opportunity to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> uh, fair enough. In your in your view, Victor, do simulators adequately prepare you for the space missions that you've been on? Well, it depends on what you mean by adequate. Uh, they don't uh, prepare you uh, completely, but they are important. You need them, and they're vital. Uh, but uh, part of uh, learning to work and live in space is being able to let space teach you what it has to teach you as well. Certain things that you just cannot experience until you are in weightlessness and, and you have to let weightlessness teach you uh, what it has, what lessons it has for you. Uh, but, yeah, simulators are absolutely critical, even if they aren't 100 percent representative of the environment you're going in. During your stay on the International Space Station, and I appreciate you being so generous with your time. Uh, it's just so rare that I get to talk with someone that has had your experience and uh, has seen the things that you've seen. But during your stay on the International Space Station, you were selected for the NASA's Artemis program. Uh, the uh, the linchpin sort of of the Artemis program is going back to the moon. You know, there was so much excitement in the NASA program and in the United States in general about going to the moon in the late 60s, early 70s. But we haven't been there in uh, since the early 1970s. Why is that the case? Why do you think the moon sort of fell out of favor, became less of a priority for American-led space travel? Frank, uh, to be completely honest with you, I would say it's uh, geopolitics. That's the short answer. It was uh, geopolitics. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about science exploration, technology development and demonstration. It was politics. And the political goal had been realized. And, and so you see what uh, history had ensued. And so now we're hopefully going back. And there may be a geopolitical facet, but there's also very much a sustainability, science, technology development, and economic development facet as well, or facets. And, and hopefully those... Uh, have much more staying power uh, to keep us uh, in the vicinity of the moon. 
What is the grand total cumulatively of time that you have spent off the planet? Well, uh, if you don't count flying in the air, my time in space is 168 days. Wow. My goodness. Um, uh, you know, there was a, an interesting story that I came across this week that being in space could actually have an interesting effect on rewiring uh, your brain, uh, that there's huge brain rewiring in astronauts who spend at least six months in space. Did you have any physical differences when you returned to earth and uh, anything long-term that you noticed in your own body? Uh, well, let's see. I think, uh, you know, a common thing we work hard to mitigate is uh, muscle and bone loss. So we, we have uh, vitamin supplements we take. We do lots of strength and cardiovascular training while we're up there. Uh, and those, that helps the muscles and your bones as well. And we try to limit the amount of salt that we eat. And so, again, what we're learning in space also helps folks here on the ground that are suffering mm. from uh, muscular, uh, musculoskeletal issues. And so uh, I had bone loss. I, I worked out really hard. I worked very hard, I think, on, for, on the exercise front in space. And I still had a, a little bit of bone loss. They say I'll recover that within a year. Uh, but I still had bone loss. And so that was one aspect. It's not just the amount, too. It's not just quantity of bone. It's the quality of your bone. You have these two cortical and trabecular bone, the spongy and the, and the, and the uh, uh, brittle bone. And so the, the ratio of those also changes. Something about the way we reclaim and lay down new bone changes in space. It's called osteopenia, and it's analogous to osteoporosis. So we're also learning things that uh, can help osteoporosis porosis patients. Uh, I didn't notice any changes to my vision, but that's something that we're always thinking about hmm. as well, uh, uh, managing that. And so we are constantly scanning the eyes of, of space explorers and, and uh, watching their vision and also just the, the topography of their eye and the back of their eye. And we take photos of that over the course of the mission. Um, and let's see, I, you know, I, I stretched out about an inch while I was in space. I lost that back. And then when I came back to Earth, I was wobbly and I felt strong but, and I could stand up, but it was really hard to balance. And that all adjusted. Like I said, your brain and body adjust pretty quickly going up and coming down. And, and I never felt motion sickness. So that I was very fortunate in that regard. Uh, but I, I think, you know, you said something about your brain being re rewired. And I think while I was in space, I did feel like a heightened sensitivity to my surroundings. I just felt like I was really aware of my surroundings and the beauty of the earth. And I did a lot of writing and I still go back and read my journal entries. And I'm, I am like, wow, you know, that's right. I remember all of those things. I do think my brain, because it was working so hard, uh, you know, one of the primary functions of our brain is to keep track of where we are. And when you take away the gravity vector, that makes that much more complicated. And so I think my brain was just working harder. It was in a higher gear. Uh, and so I, I just I think I felt the benefit of that in reading and writing. And and uh, and I tried to capture as much of that. Uh, it was kind of like running an experiment on myself. Uh, but I definitely felt uh, like my brain was working really hard while I was in space. How would you describe the comfort? of the Crew Dragon spacecraft versus the older spacecraft? Well, uh, by older spacecraft, you know, in, in recent times, we've got a Soyuz, uh, the, the spacecraft we fly with our Russian partners. 
and we had the space shuttle uh, that we were flying back up until uh, 2011. And so when you look at both of those, the seats on the space shuttle are pretty analogous to the seats uh, in Dragon. Uh, that some of the hardware is a little different. The suit interface is different. So I would say overall, it was it's a very comfortable version of that. Uh, but it's they're both very large seats. When you look at Soyuz. Uh, we're still flying those with the Russian Space Agency now and our partner Cosmonauts there. And that seat, oh, they're very tiny. You have to have your seat custom molded and you sit kind of in a crouched position. And so that's the biggest difference in terms of comfort. Uh, when, when people look inside the spacecraft, they are looking in the descent module, usually where the seats are. And so they think that, well, it is, the, the, cab, the cabin is much smaller than our Crew Dragon. But when you add the descent module with something we call the orbital module, uh, it's a, a module that the Soyuz crews can go into if they have a longer rendezvous, uh, then they have uh, an opportunity to go and, and drink water or use the bathroom. They both vehicle both, both vehicles have about ten cubic meters of space, and they're they're similar in size when you add both of those together. But in terms of the seats, the seats themselves, I would say the the Crew Dragon is kind of like a lazy boy compared to the uh, the uh, uh, you know having to 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 crouch down into the seat of a Soyuz. This is Black History Month. We're celebrating a lot of African-American trailblazers, pioneers and people that have been the first to do various things. You were the first African-American crew member to live on the International Space Station. Do you view your own career trajectory and your own life as an inspiration to other young black children that may have aspirations of going to space, or is that not something that you think about? How cognizant are you of the fact that you're the uh, first black uh, astronaut to do something so significant, like live on the International Space Station? Yeah, Frank, I'm cognizant of it. You know, I'm cognizant of the legacy of folks who uh, I stand on the shoulders of black astronauts and other astronauts. And I think it's important that I give honor to that legacy. And you know, what I did is special, but I think it's even more special that I'm not going to be the last black astronaut to live on the space station. My colleague, Jessica Watkins is going to launch here in a few months. I'm really happy about that. And so I, I do think about it, but you know, I think it's this, job is so unique, right? None of us deserves to do this. A few of us just are blessed to get to do so. And I try to be the best representative that I can of of NASA and and our nation and of of humanity. And so uh, in doing that, I, by nature of what we do, riding rockets, doing these great science experiments and, and sharing that with the the public, uh, if it inspires people, well, great. I don't walk around my house or in my normal life thinking I am an inspiration to people. But when I go places and, and what we get to share, what we do as a team here, uh, it, it's inspiring to people. And so I think of that as a responsibility. I have a duty to use that to do the most good that I can for society. And so I am cognizant of it, but I'm also cognizant of the fact I had a I had a young man say to me when I first showed up here, and this really stuck with me, he was asking me about flying F-18s and what I was looking forward to and going to space. And he was maybe seven years old and, and he's a young, he's a young white kid. And, you know, we're just, I'm describing to him what I, what, you know, what I'm excited about is maybe dreaming of working and walking on the moon and going to the space station. And he says, you know, you're like a real life Captain America. (laughs) And that, that really impacted me. And so, you know what? 
I hope that what I am doing is meaningful, period, as a part of American history, as a part of the whole history of this country. And if that inspires young black kids, that's great. It should, because I look like them. I am. I was them. But you know what? It's also much bigger than that. And I think we are inspiring the next generation, the whole thing, all the kids of all walks of life, I think, can look up to what it is that we get, what we have the fortune of doing here for NASA. Well, uh, you certainly have inspired me uh, with your accomplishments in your career and just hearing your enthusiasm for space travel and challenging the limits of uh, the human experience. And I wish you the best of luck. I'm eager to see what happens next w- with you, whether it's the moon, whether it's Mars, whether it's uh, something else that's uh, that's extraordinary. Victor J. Glover, I can't thank you enough for the time this morning. Uh, I'll look forward to our next conversation. It's great talking to you, Frank. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. Our phone number is 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.